We have a roundup of NOS news highlights for you today and an overview of NOAA's ongoing involvement with last week's oil rig accident in the Gulf of Mexico. It's Wednesday, April 28th, and you're listening to Episode 50 of Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We're going to start off today in the Mid-Atlantic, where the Cooperative Oxford Laboratory, that's a partnership between NOAA, the State of Maryland Department of Natural Resources, and the U.S. Coast Guard, just celebrated its 50th anniversary. The roots of the lab trace back to the 1950s, when a parasite known as MSX was devastating the oyster industry in Delaware and Maryland. By 1957, the parasite had wiped out just about all of the oyster population in the lower Delaware Bay, Somewhere between 90 and 95% of all the oysters in the bay were killed. A couple years after this huge loss, MSX was discovered in the Chesapeake Bay. It was at this point that the U.S. Department of Interior decided to establish a laboratory in Oxford, Maryland. That's a little town on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay that's been around since the 1600s. This decision proved to be instrumental in halting the spread of MSX in the bay, and it was just the beginning for the lab. Over the past five decades, scientists at the Cooperative Oxford Lab have developed a reputation as world-renowned experts in detecting shellfish diseases and helping to prevent their spread. Researchers there have guided the development of international regulations for shellfish import and export, and they've helped set the groundwork for regulations to prevent the introduction of invasive species in our waterways. Science conducted at the lab also played a critical role in identifying factors in the collapse of the Chesapeake's striped bass population back in the early 1980s. And although the numbers of striped bass are up today, high levels of disease and dwindling prey for this top predator are still a cause for concern. So Oxford Lab researchers today are working to better understand the causes and consequences of these dynamics for the striped bass fishery. And in addition to studying species like oysters and striped bass, Researchers at the lab are also engaged in cutting-edge research on the impact of land use on water quality, and this is going to help states prioritize restoration dollars to get the highest possible impact for their money. Within the next six months, studies of three watersheds in Maryland are due out from the lab, and these studies will provide the first-ever detailed look at how different kinds of development, from agriculture to urbanization, has affected the watersheds. And when those studies come out, we'll talk with a researcher from the lab to talk us through the results. You'll find a link to the lab in our show notes if you'd like to learn more online. And we wish the Cooperative Oxford Lab a happy 50th anniversary. Next up, we head down the coast of Florida, where more than 100 coral colonies, including brain corals and a variety of star corals, were recently reattached to their homes last weekend in the waters beneath the world-renowned Mallory Square Wharf in Key West. The corals, some of them as large as two feet in diameter, were removed from the wharf's pilings last June by Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary and Seabite Incorporated, and that was to prevent damage to the fragile animals during an extensive construction project on the wharf. After spending the past 10 months in a coral nursery beneath the sanctuary's docks, the colonies were transplanted back to their homes beneath the wharf by the contractor and sanctuary staff. And this is something that the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary is often involved with. They collaborate with local, state, and federal agencies on upwards of 100 permits per year to make sure that construction activities in the Keys don't impact coral or other sanctuary resources. And as those rescued corals were being cemented into place last weekend, NOAA Administrator and Undersecretary for Oceans and Atmosphere, Dr. Jane Lukchenko, 
and acting NOS Assistant Administrator David Kennedy were on hand at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary to visit a coral reef restoration project that's imploring local people while simultaneously helping threatened species of coral to recover. This was part of Earth Day activities. NOAA celebrated Earth Week at eight of the 50 coastal and habitat restoration projects around the nation, funded through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009. Two of those projects are coral reef restoration projects. In the Florida Keys, project partners are rearing elkhorn and staghorn corals in underwater nurseries, and then they're transplanting the genetically diverse farm-raised coral colonies back to the reef. With stimulus funds, partners will help replenish 34 degraded reefs in eight coral reef areas in the Florida Keys and in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The second coral reef restoration project that's part of the stimulus package is in Hawaii. The Monolua Bay Reef Restoration Project in Monolua Bay, Hawaii, will restore coral reefs through manual removal of invasive alien algae from 22 acres of nearshore waters. And while we're on the topic of corals, on April 12th, NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program delivered a report to Congress called Implementation of the National Coral Reef Action Strategy, a report on NOAA Coral Reef Conservation Program activities from 2007 to 2009. That's a mouthful. This is the third biennial progress report to Congress required by the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000. The report provides summaries and examples of the activities conducted by the Coral Reef Conservation Program and its extramural partners between 2007 and 2009 to implement the 13 goals addressed in the National Coral Reef Action Strategy. The report also describes the program's reorganization to focus its efforts to understand and address the three major threats to reefs, impacts from climate change, fishing, and land-based sources of pollution. You'll find links to the report in our show notes at oceanservice.noaa.gov. Now let's take a quick trip to American Samoa, where the Office of Response and Restoration's Emergency Response Division and the National Weather Service recently provided support for salvage operations on the vessel USS Chihalas, that's a sunken ship in Pago Pago Harbor in American Samoa. About 55,560 gallons of aviation fuel and 1,269 gallons of diesel fuel were removed from the wreck by the U.S. Navy Supervisor of Salvage in the U.S. Navy Mobile Underwater Diving Salvage Unit out of Honolulu with logistical support from the U.S. Coast Guard. The fuel was now being shipped by barge to the west coast of the U.S., where it will be transported overland to Kansas City, Missouri, and there it's going to be used at a concrete manufacturing plant. The USS Chihalas exploded, burned, and sank in 1949 while offloading gasoline. The ship had been releasing small amounts of oil ever since it sank. And now on to our main story, which, if you've been following the news over the past week, you know is about an oil spill that's underway right now. Last week, there was an explosion that resulted in a massive fire on a mobile offshore drilling unit in the Gulf of Mexico, about 50 miles offshore of Louisiana. After the rig burned for hours, it capsized and sank into the Gulf on April 22nd. Over the weekend, on-site operations were in full swing, but severe storms and high seas hampered response efforts. Two leaks have been identified so far, and preliminary estimates suggest that about 42,000 gallons of oil are being released today at a depth of 5,000 feet from the incident. On Sunday, an attempt to control the leaking well using a remotely operated vehicle, that's ROV for short, was not successful. And as of Monday evening, ROVs were continuing to work on triggering what's known as a blowout preventer. This is a series of valves that sits at the wellhead to contain the leak. 
On-scene crews are also designing and fabricating an underwater oil collection device that would trap escaping oil near the seafloor and funnel it for collection. The problem is that the leak is so deep. Collection devices have been used successfully in shallower water, but never before at this depth. In total, over 1,000 people are now supporting the operational response to address well control and cleanup of the floating oil on the surface. The main effort is now focused on gathering more information about the spill, planning for undersea containment, drilling relief wells, recovering as much oil as possible, and preparing for potential impacts to Gulf Coast shorelines. The latest NOAA oil spill trajectory analyses do not indicate oil coming to shore over the next few days, but that is subject to change if the rate of oil release increases or if the weather varies from what is forecasted. So while there are still many unknowns at the time of this recording on April 27th, we can't tell you what NOAA assets are involved in the operation. Staff from NOAA's Office of Response and Restoration and the Emergency Response Division have been providing scientific support to the U.S. Coast Guard and the Unified Command that's coordinating operations. This support includes predicting where the oil is going and its effects, identifying resources at risk, providing weather forecasts, and planning response and overflight operations. NOAA's Response and Restoration Office is also coordinating with state and federal stakeholders to determine the potential severity of the incident and whether natural resource injuries may have occurred. In addition to the National Ocean Service activities we just spoke about, there are a lot of other NOAA activities going on at the scene. The National Weather Service is providing forecasting support. NOAA Data Buoy Center data is being used in oil trajectory forecasting. NOAA Fisheries is engaged on issues related to marine mammals, sea turtles, and fishery resources. And finally, NOAA's National Environmental Satellite Data and Information Service is providing experimental imagery support. So this gives you a broad overview of NOAA's role in the event, but if you want to learn more about how NOAA responds to oil spills, I hope you visit our website and listen to our sister podcast, Diving Deeper. Diving Deeper covered this very topic, quite by chance, just a few weeks ago on April 7th. Tune in to hear Dr. Amy Merton, NOAA co-director of the Office of Response and Restoration's Coastal Response Research Center, talk about NOAA's roles and responsibilities with oil spills. We'll have a direct link to this in our show notes. And that's all for this week. If you have any questions about this week's podcast, about the National Ocean Service, or about our ocean, you can send us a note at nos.info at noaa.gov. Now let's bring in the ocean. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We'll be back in two weeks. Our next episode is one you won't want to miss. We'll be talking to a NOAA expert and a U.S. Geological Survey expert about a new report to Congress about hypoxia.